You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. We've got another incredible episode for you today. I'm very excited to have Dr. Susan Hyland on the show. She is Almar H. Shatford Professor of New Testament at Candler School of Theology, uh, the University of Emory. Dr. Hyland is a prolific scholar. She's done a lot of work in the Gospel of John, and then more recently looking at women in the ancient Mediterranean world. She's written a number of really well-received academic monographs, um, but the book that we're gonna be discussing today is her most recent book, Finding Phoebe, What New Testament Women Were Really Like. And this is, in my opinion, the best introduction to women in the New Testament. It's written very clearly, lays out a lot of the historical evidence, and includes discussion questions and exercises at the end of every chapter. You can tell that I'm a teacher. Uh, I absolutely love this book and the layout of it. I think it's really helpful. Dr. Highland's done a great service uh, with this book, and I would highly encourage you to pick up a copy of her book and maybe even consider doing a discussion group around it. I think it would be a really fruitful opportunity. So there'll be a link to her book in the description. I also want to bring to your attention that uh, we do have a YouTube channel here at the Center for Bible Study. I know some are aware, but others may not be newer listeners that are joining us. And we're working on developing and growing this channel so that it can provide excellent resources and biblical scholarship to the church more broadly. So if you're at all inclined, please do check us out. You can use the link that's posted in the description, or you can search Center for Bible Study on YouTube, and you'll find that we have up now over, I think it is over 100 videos, uh, shorter and longer videos. You also have the option to watch the podcast, as well as to watch clips from other episodes, shorts, other material that I'll be creating. So please do subscribe and share the resources if you find them helpful. And uh, with that, and without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our episode with Dr. Highland. coming from the same, you know, uh, context of scholarship that everyone else is, I was used to the explanation that said that women really weren't capable of much in the ancient world. And so a lot of the things that I found were surprising to me, um, certainly property ownership was the idea that women were not actually subordinate to their husbands from most of the New Testament period um, across most of the Mediterranean world. That was a huge surprise as well. And so yeah. I do want to bring those things to readers' attention because I think it changes the way that we might think about the New Testament. Welcome, everybody, back to the podcast. I am beyond thrilled to invite our guest this week, Dr. Susan Hyland. I've been a fan of her work for quite some time. We're here, obviously, to discuss her newest book, Finding Phoebe, which I couldn't put down once I started reading, and I am so delighted that we have the opportunity to discuss it here today. So welcome, Dr. Hyland. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So maybe just to begin, I'd love to give an opportunity just for our audience to get to know you a little bit. I mean, maybe a little bit about your journey into biblical studies and what drew you to some of the research interests, maybe particularly researching women in the ancient, ancient Mediterranean world, New Testament and things like that. Yeah, thanks. Well, I guess a couple of things stick out for me uh, today as I'm telling that story. One is that my seminary experience was at Princeton Theological Seminary which had two things. One, it gave me a good grounding in biblical studies, even though I didn't know at the time that I wanted to pursue a PhD. I was totally prepared to do that. Although at, this, at the time that I was there, it was not welcoming at all to women oh. in particular. And so 
it was a very highly charged political kind of atmosphere when I was there and, and strange in a lot of ways that I won't go into, but it made me more of an activist about women's participation in the church than I had ever needed to be before because it wasn't a thing that really came up prior to that. And so I just learned a lot more about those issues, mostly through my own study at the time because of the climate. The other thing I'll say is that I just became really interested in questions about the social history of the New Testament. I remember one book in particular was a well-known book, Dale Martin's The Corinthian Body, that yeah. came out about the time I was in seminary or right after. And what I like about that book is the first chapter or two where Martin argues that um, that there were spiritual bodies in the ancient world, right? That there wasn't, the spiritual wasn't an immaterial thing, but it was this bodily thing. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing, right? That's, it just kind of explodes your mind and makes mm. you think totally differently about contrast between our world and theirs. And then of course, Paul's language about uh, the resurrection and first Corinthians 13. So those kinds of things made me think, what a rich thing to study, right? That's cool. And thinking about your way into studying women in the ancient world and in um, in this book, Finding Phoebe, but some of your other earlier monographs as well, it strikes me that part of your research project is to really draw attention to evidence that's kind of been sitting there, but maybe hasn't been fully appreciated, right? It's kind of like sitting there in plain sight. So thinking a little bit about like Bernadette Bruton's work on women in ancient Judaism and how these kind of titles and functions, things women were doing that were there in the evidence weren't really fully appreciated or were kind of being marginalized. And so th what happens is there's so much that comes out in your work that maybe is surprising initially to readers. Uh, I mean, I confess I was even surprised in chapter one. I didn't know that one third of property ownership went to women in the ancient world. Um, that was not a statistic I had in my head and that kind of blew me away. Another thing that blew me away was you do such a nice job of paralleling statements about women being silent and that kind of being a cultural norm alongside. And those same authors who say that also have women teaching and doing all these other things. So there's a lot there that maybe um, would be surprising to people. I'm just curious if in your research, any of these things surprised you and are there things that in the book that you think might be most surprising to people that maybe haven't spent a lot of time or even people that have uh, spent a lot of time in the ancient world? Yeah. So the I, you're right that a lot of this evidence has been there for a long time and people have noticed for a long time what I also noticed, which is that there's a lot of evidence both in the New Testament and outside of it that suggests women shouldn't do much, couldn't do much, right? Should stay at home, be subordinate, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, there's also a lot of evidence that suggests women are doing all kinds of crazy things, right? right. And right. so it's this, like, there's these two piles of sort of contradicting evidence. And there is a little bit of new evidence that, you know, emerges over the years as people publish inscriptions and whatnot. But overall, it hasn't changed that much. And I think partly what I started to see was that the amount of the evidence that suggests that women actually are doing stuff, it goes beyond what people have normally said, which has usually mm -hmm. been that, oh, those women are just an, an exception to the rule. The right. rule is doing nothing. And then the exceptions are the women who can do stuff. And they were usually thought to be elite women because, of course, the evidence of elite, elite women is more likely to survive the centuries, right? right? It's written right. in stone and it's expensive and all of that. But there's just so much of it and not just of elite women that, to me, it suggested that that explanation that women were exceptions to the rule wasn't really a good explanation after all. And maybe we should rethink what that was. And so yeah. um, I started to look for other ways to explain how these two things could coexist within the same cultural context and how it would have made sense from their perspective. So I did find 
Um, I mean, also, I guess I'll say coming from the same, you know, uh, context of scholarship that everyone else is, I was used to the explanation that said that women really weren't capable of much in the ancient world. And so a lot of the things that I found were surprising to me, um, certainly property ownership was the idea that women were not actually subordinate to their husbands from most of the New Testament period um, across most of the Mediterranean world. That was a huge surprise as well. And so yeah. I do want to bring those things to readers' attention because I think it changes the way that we might think about the New Testament and what it means. Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. It's 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 funny because even within scholarship, sometimes patriarchy is just kind of put out there as the the explanation, right? And we all know that's what it is. And so and, and you definitely show in your work, yeah, patriarchy is certainly a thing. It's a cultural norm, but the difference between patriarchy in 21st century and in the ancient Mediterranean doesn't seem as wide to me anymore, having read your work. I mean, there's still differences, but it's easier to see a lot more of the continuity than even previously before reading the book. So I, I really appreciated that. One of the things, I mean, you show is that titles and offices, because I think another stereotype, maybe even one that I've fallen into in the classroom is to say, well, you know, kind of in a patriarchal culture, when you have more kind of like organizational established roles, that tends to be more hierarchical, male dominated, but where you see women doing more and leadership is kind of in these more charismatic spaces, maybe where you don't have these institutional roles. But I mean, as you show in your book, we have examples of women in all kinds of different roles. And, um, you know, we know of women who were in official titles in cities, polices, uh, in, in religious contexts, not that they divided those things the way we do today, but all of these kind of uh, various roles. So would you give us kind of maybe a brief overview of what you've seen in the evidence and um, what you draw out in the book in terms of titles of women and how that might relate to titles or functions uh, ascribed to women in the New Testament? Yeah. So in the cultural context at large, there are women who are serving various roles as, say, city magistrates, so civic functions, um, the sort of overseer of the games, right? The the um, athletic games were a big part of cultural life in cities and the uh, woman might be somebody who oversees those. Um, also in religious roles as priestesses of various religious cults. So um, many of these titles were the same titles that men held also. Um, there weren't special titles for women suggesting that they had a special job that wasn't like what men did. It seems to be that they're doing the same thing and that they received the same honor for those kinds of roles. So, you know, we have roles like that in the New Testament as well. We have uh, deacon as one that is a right. title that is for both men and women. Uh, widow is also a title, but that one is just for women, of course. Um, mm -hmm. But both of those suggest that there is a special function within the community that's designated that women are called to serve and that was important to people of the time period. And of course, it doesn't go away in Christian history. And your comment about, you know, the... Um, the idea that women didn't have these sort of, you know, institutional roles is a really common explanation too, um, and mm -hmm. one that I am pushing back against. Mm -hmm. And it especially suggests that over time, as Christianity develops and institutionalizes, right, that um, that's when women's roles start to go away. Because you know, in the early times, it was all kind of a free for all, and right. uh, the spirit was moving, and women were doing stuff, right? And then right. people clamp down on that, and that seems clearly false, also because. Yeah. Um, these roles of women as deacons, virgins, widows, abbesses, all of it, they don't go away. In fact, they increase in time um, over many centuries and don't go away until probably the 12th century. Um, it's, it's hard to explain that as the you know, different social uh, institutional context. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely, you know, from my seminary days at, at Fuller um, and just kind of picking up on the scholarship, I had the idea of, you know, the Pauline church is free flowing. It's all good. And then Deutero-Paul moving to Catholicism. And that's where they really, you know, come down. But what's interesting is like in you mentioned this in the book, too. And and I was struck by the, um, you know, that source text by um it's Oziek and Magadan's book on ordained mm -hmm. women in the church, where you have church fathers looking at 1 Timothy 3, which talks about women. Clearly, I think women deacons um, there. And you have church fathers talking about it like, yeah, of course, this is, it's a woman deacon because they had orders of women deacons in their own context. So it made perfect sense to them that that would that would be the case. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. You don't get into it too much in the book, but I'm, I'm curious to just, you know, hear what you think about this. So we have obviously diakonos is applied to women. There are other titles in the New Testament that play a really big role for people when it comes to women in ministry today. And maybe later on we can get into how we reason from the New Testament to our own context. But I'm thinking of titles like elder or overseer, which are explicitly attributed to men, but maybe not exclusively to men. I'd be interested to hear your, your thoughts on that. It strikes me that Paul's only letter, uh, only undisputed Pauline letter that uses the term overseer right at the beginning, Philippians, right, to the overseers and deacons is a letter written in part to mediate an argument between, it seems like, women leaders in the church, very clearly, Yodia and Syntyche, in a church, by the way, according to Acts, which began in a woman's uh, house, Lydia. So I think that's fascinating that that's the term we have, overseer, there at the beginning. I don't think it strains credulity to think that these two women might have held that title uh, in that church. So I don't know, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on how we might think just historically uh, how likely it is that the uh, episkopos or presbyteros title might have been used uh, of women in some ancient churches. I think it's very likely that it was used of women in some ancient churches, like you say. Um, I think so things to consider are number one, that words like episkopoi, although they're masculine, plural in Greek, as you know, the masculine plural is often used to include right. both genders, right? So brothers right. is said when we mean brothers and sisters in lots of contexts. And so in a way, we don't really know the gender of the addressees when Paul just says Episcopoi, right? Right. Um, same same with presbyters. And so yeah. um, even though deacons is explicitly in 1 Timothy, Timothy 3 suggests that there's deacons and then there's women deacons. Um, so it's like, but the word is the same, right? There's mm -hmm. just... Um, special qualifications of deacons who are women, that doesn't mean that it couldn't also be the case that you could use the word to, as in a gender inclusive way. So I think that should give us some openness to consider, reconsider what, what was going on in that situation. In later periods, there is evidence of women as presbyters, which is what we now would call elders or priests, and even as bishops, right? There are a couple of um, inscriptions or mosaics um that suggests that there were there was a woman who was a bishop and there are also some places where women elders maybe even seem to be traditional uh because there are a couple of sources in the same area suggesting yeah. that that was the case and so the fact that this isn't common doesn't mean that it was forbidden right, right. um it it may just mean that you know um, there are different practices in different localities for one thing and we can't um ever stop remembering how diverse ancient Christianity is and yeah. um, in both belief and practice. And so there's that part of it. But there's also the fact that, you know, it's 
it's less likely that women will take on the most important roles in mm -hmm. the ancient world, right? Mm -hmm. um, even with all the prohibitions against women as um, you know leaders uh, who did like legislative and judicial functions, there are some women who are queens in the ancient world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Cleopatra, of course, is mm -hmm. a famous one who comes to mind, or mm -hmm. Alexandra slash Shalamzion in the first century BC in, in Judea. So it's possible, even though it seems to be forbidden, right? But it's just not very common. And I would say the same thing is probably true in Christianity as it emerges, that women are in those higher roles, but only sometimes, right? And it's yeah. more common to find women's leadership in all kinds of other forms, and less so as the bishop, for example. Yeah, that makes good sense to me. So obviously your book is Finding Phoebe and Phoebe is identified as diakonos, but also prostasis, so a a patron. And um, one of the things that I think came out so clearly from your book that I, I mean, I was aware of before, but it really hit me when reading your, your work is the intersection of a variety of factors when it comes to appropriateness and speech and function and role. I think we have a hard time appreciating how hierarchical the ancient world was and, and just in expectation. So one of the things you bring out is we've, we've sometimes had a, as, as historians, a reductionist way of looking at this strictly through the lens of sex or gender and not recognizing that actually class plays a huge role in this. So I'd love to hear just for my audience as well, a little bit of your thinking on this, that if we just focus on the gender or sex of the speaker, we're missing something because, um, Many of the prohibitions against women speaking would also be rooted probably in a hierarchical system that would preclude many men from speaking, if not most men from speaking. Um, so how do you see class playing uh, playing into this whole conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such an important question. You know, when we see that language like in First Timothy chapter 2, 11 and 12, women should be silent and uh, shouldn't have authority over men, right? Um, in our cultural context, we have read that as if all men have authority over all women. Right. But that would be absurd in the ancient world right. where many women were slave owners and owned male slaves, mm -hmm. right? And they absolutely had authority over their enslaved men, right? Um, it would have been crazy to think otherwise. And so readers of those verses in First Timothy 2 are not at all thinking what we're thinking that all men have authority over all women. It just would right. never make sense to them, right? But it is that social class function that intervenes for them that changes what it means to be male or female. And so um, if we think about that and we think about a woman like Phoebe, who clearly had a lot of cultural capital mm -hmm. in the church and probably outside of it, um, it would change the way that we think about what she's capable of and what her relationships with the men around her would have been like. Even Paul, who says she's a patron, even of him. Yeah. So, I mean, is it is it surprising then, my, I'm asking kind of rhetorically, that many of the women we see mentioned taking on leadership roles do seem to also have some means, like they have a, a church or a house large enough to host an assembly. They're supporting Paul or some in the mission financially. That, that seems to be... Um, yeah, pretty clear indication that, and it'd probably be the same for, for men, right? I, I'm, I'm assuming as well, like strikes me now, even in talking, Paul opens First Corinthians mentioning his source of information is, is people from the house of Chloe. So she's sending her house servants, slaves, to, maybe uh, to report to Paul. This seems to be, she's a patron, you know, household uh, leader of a house church, probably, you know, all these things are kind of intersecting together. So it just seems to me really important that we have all these things that we're holding together. I, that, that just came out really clearly in your book. 
Yeah, it's. I think it's one of the things that's hard for us to grapple with as modern people because we want life to be more egalitarian. And yes. like you said earlier, the ancient world is never egalitarian and didn't right. even shoot for that. Um, right. But but you know it was true even with men that if you're male and wealthy, you're much more likely to be a leader in an early church than if you were a lower status person. But it was true with women, and I think it was part of what made it possible for women to be in such leadership roles was the importance of social status was so great so that they were more likely that people would would turn to women opposed to some of the lower class people beneath them, regardless of their gender. Yeah, that that makes really good sense. And I think, I don't know, would you say also when we're thinking about even describing patriarchy, it's important that we don't reduce it strictly to to sex or gender then that we're also highlighting the hierarchical nature of it that it's really it's a it's this pyramid you're fitting men and women into and, and it's kind of slotting them in and so it's this whole cultural paradigm that is i i mean i think rightly problematic for us today like we we mm-hmm. we, we balk it at it rightly so but we have to recognize that this is the culture in which the the bible was was produced and so yeah we it's something we i think we have to to wrestle with but be honest about and uh, that, that's something i really appreciate about your work as well is it problematizes simplistic arguments from a variety of sectors within the church today when they want to construct a biblical argument for uh, whether it comes to the question of women in ministry or marriage or or, or whatnot could you talk to us a little bit about the text that uh, ostensibly silence women in the church. So you've already mentioned the big one, 1 Timothy 2.12. There's also, you know, that that short part in 1 Corinthians 14, which is really complicated because of the shift there. there. There may be some kind of rhetorical shift. Is Paul quoting somebody? Has it been interpolated? There's all kinds of different thoughts here, or it may just make sense in context. There's, there's different ways you, you know, can explain it, but I'd love to give just, maybe if you could just focus first on the, the 1 Timothy 2 text, explain what you see there. And I'll just preface this by saying any time in a public setting, you know, that I'm talking about uh, women in ministry, inevitably, I, I've never yet had an instance, and I don't know if you, you can attest this as well, where somebody didn't throw out 1 Timothy 2.12 as if it was like a mic drop moment, as if I'd never thought of that verse before, right? It's just like, that's the verse that that's the game changer. So I thought it makes sense to kind of focus on that. And you take a little bit of a different line, right? Whereas many in the egalitarian camp have tried to discern some sort of problem or issue underlying the rhetoric there, your line is to say more generally, no, I think actually this makes good sense in its historical context. So I'd love to just give you a chance to unpack that a little bit for us, because I think that's a really important uh, part of the book. Thanks. Yeah, I'm in general, I'm not a big fan of trying to discern the history behind the New Testament text, because I think it's always very speculative. Um, and although it's it's been useful for people like those trying to pursue the egalitarian line, so I acknowledge that. But in this case, I think that the language actually can make sense and we can hold it alongside the language in chapter three, which clearly identifies women as leaders and try to understand how both of those things come out of the same right. right? So to Timothy is a great example of how we still have these two piles of evidence that we were talking about earlier, right. but they actually exist within the same author. So we right. can't really separate them and say, you know, there's a group over here that does this and there's a group over here that does that. That is what people try to do with the First Corinthians 14 piece, right? Saying it wasn't actually right. Paul that wrote it. Um, right. But in First Timothy, you really can't do that. They're yeah. both there. They're stuck in the same um, piece of writing. And so what does that mean? Like, why did ancient people, how would that make sense to them? And the way that I've come to understand it is to think of the language in chapter two as an affirmation of a very widely held 
cultural ideal, which was that women should be silent in front of men. Now, what people meant by that, I think, is they actually meant it for men too. Um, any person, it was good to cultivate the ability to control your speech when you were in the presence of somebody who was your social superior, right? Again, back to the hierarchy, right? So yeah. if an elder is in the room with you, right, or a neighbor who is of higher social class, you should completely defer to them in speech, whether they're male or female. And uh, it's all about discerning your own social position in relation to the people around you. I think ancient people were really good at that because mm. they had to do it every day in different situations. And so for them, this would have been not a problem at all. But that doesn't mean they would, they, they do still make these grand statements like women should be silent in front of men, right? Or husbands should speak right. for, the, for the family. Um, right. Those kinds of statements occur all the time, even though right. we also find lots of evidence that women are speaking and they're and they're praised for doing it and they're doing it mm. in important situations right mm. so mary magdalene is a great example she goes and says yeah. i have seen the lord right nobody says oh shush don't do that right, right um because right. it's valuable it's important yeah. and she's the only one who can bear that message and so yeah. that that would totally make sense in the ancient world and the same in first timothy we have that affirmation of hierarchy and status and of that very, very important virtue of self-control, right? The ability to mm. control your speech. Sofrasune, yeah, that Sofrasune, yeah, self-control, yeah. yeah. Which is built into that passage, right? Because the mm -hmm. part, portion before it about clothing is really about controlling your display of your wealth, right? Not mm -hmm. gold and pearls and braided hair, these fancy hairstyles that women had at the time, but to show simplicity in dress, which was understood as self-control, mm -hmm. which was, by the way, an important qualification for leadership in the ancient world. Right. It's the same thing that shows up in the qualifications for all for all of it, the bishops and deacons in chapter three, um, you know, don't drink too much, don't talk too much, or don't say what you don't mean, right? All of these kinds of qualities fit together under this rubric of self-control, which was a widely held virtue and antiquity, and one that yeah. Christians really emphasized um, in the New Testament letters, especially. So, I see those as fitting together, actually. If we see chapter two, not as prohibiting all women's speech or authority, but as saying, you know, women like men, women should cultivate uh, self-control with regard to their tongue and be, you know, acknowledge the hierarchy around them. But I see that that actually still left a lot of room for women to be leaders in the early church. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, and it's something you, you've stretched me and caused me to really wrestle with that because I've been one who's leaned towards some kind of underlying explanation maybe for what's going on there. But your argument has pushed me to think about maybe, no, maybe we don't need to find some kind of issue going on here. It might just be a generalized statement, and, you know, and even fitting in with what he says just above using the same root word for silence, living, it's sometimes translated like living peaceably, but we can see here that he's concerned with general kind of presentation, cultural presentation to the wider world of the, uh, of the assembly. And I also just want to underscore your point about the clothing and the dress. This is sometimes misunderstood as having to do with like female sexuality or sensuality, but it's really about not showing off wealth. That's really the primary uh, thing, which ancients harp on a lot, actually. If you want to be a good, good ruler, a good leader, you're one that is self-controlled, restrained. You don't show off your, uh, your wealth or your, your, your position. 
The last thing you want is a ruler who uh, spends all their money on a dinner party and doesn't have any laugh to build a road through town, right? Right. right and this, right. this is a real thing in the ancient world because that was how most of the roads and fancy buildings were built was because of the patrons who donated it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's not like we have any, uh, you know, issues with our politics today and politicians making a bunch of money or, you know. <laughs> I know. Um, I wish we would cultivate this virtue a little bit more today. To right, be right, right, right. Um, I had another point that was really interesting to kind of underscore what you were saying is the two authors that you draw out making very similar statements to what we find here in in, in uh, 1 Timothy 2.12, Cato and, and Plutarch both have these kind of statements about women being quiet, deferring, uh, asking their husbands at home. And yet these both these authors both still have other statements about women speaking and praising women for speaking, you know, Plutarch's advice to bride and groom, I think is one of the more illuminating texts to read alongside some of Paul's letters, because this is written to one of Plutarch's female students. Um, Plutarch was probably on the more egalitarian side of elite men who were writing, but still nowhere near where we would maybe want him to be. But, but he's got these statements about, you know, women being quiet, women, women deferring, but then also praising women for speaking. He's quoting female philosophers. So yeah, really helping us wrestle with the tension that we sometimes have treated these things like they're mutually exclusive, one or the other. And what you show is actually we, we find them kind of side by side in the same in the same sources. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, I can't even remember how I came upon this discovery, but I'd read Advice to Bride and Groom, but then uh, also later discovered that the person that that's addressed to uh, Eurydice is the yeah. woman. She's marrying somebody, uh, and Plutarch writes to them. But she's the one who's really um, he has a connection to, and she's actually been his pupil, right? So right. Plutarch, this famous philosopher, has taught this wealthy young girl. But there are inscriptions to Eurydice uh, by her daughter. She was also apparently a priestess at the shrine at Delphi, and so you see again that social standing, right? And you can sort of imagine what kinds of expectations would have come along with being a priestess uh, at Delphi. And um, just it just changes the way that I contextualize what Plutarch says and the advice yeah. he's giving. Yeah, but it yeah, is no. general advice, right? It's not, it's not like there's a problem. It's not like Eurydice and Pinianus have a bad marriage, and he's trying to fix it. Um, again, thinking about First Timothy and like what the context is, it's that this is just really good advice to give people yeah. in marriage is to acknowledge that you know, men have a higher position than women in the family, and it's going to create harmony and all of this kind of stuff. But then you st still see Eurydice doing these great things. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, I one little one I want to sneak in here just to get your thoughts on do you have any take on the use of the term alphantao in uh, First Timothy that it's often translated like exercise authority over but people have made a big deal that yeah, we don't have that many instances of the use of this word. And so it, when you look at it in context in other places, it has a kind of violent domineering connotation, but it is, others will come back and say, yeah, but it's put right alongside with Didasco teaching. So, you know, and there's all these kind of debates raging back and forth, but I'm just curious, does it factor into your thinking at all? Or is, is this just, yeah, I kind of used a weird word to talk about uh, some kind of authority. I think Plutarch when he's talking, he says it's it's uh, shameful for the wife to, it's not the same word. It's like some kind of form of exercising authority mm -hmm. over her husband. Um, not not maybe not quite like alfenteo, but it's um, there's some kind of word that he uses for that. But yeah, I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think it makes less difference to me uh, what that particular word means, because I'm not 
people who want to, you know, say that authentic has a very narrow meaning are trying to limit what that verse says, right? Mm -hmm. It's because they see it as a prohibition for all women at all, at all times or everywhere. Right. And since I don't see it that way, I think the cultural context meant that people would have interpreted it differently and the social status would have been so important in understanding it that it's less, it doesn't matter to me as much to try to sure. limit what authentic means. I do think, however, that part of what is problematic to the ancient people about women having authority, whatever that means, over a man, is that it does suggest, I mean, if the woman and the man are of the same social standing, it suggests a real faux pas socially, right? right. And so in that sense, I think the idea that authentic is kind of an you know, an abuse of authority or a misuse of authority would fit that. What th that mm -hmm. does suggest what they mean is that you're not playing by the hierarchy the way that we understand it. It should. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. And in that case, it would be right in line with what Plutarch says about it being shameful for the wife to exercise authority or mastery uh, over her husband. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, what would you see also like instructions in the pastoral epistles uh, that presume that an elder or overseer would be the husband of one wife, right? Because we also hear that kind of language, that that would be absolute, or is that, uh, again, a general rule, but ancients would know, like, hey, no, if you've got a woman that's qualified or of higher status, then, you know, in this case, you know, go for it. Would you put it in that kind of that same category? Or do you see the pastorals as being maybe a little bit more restrictive than other places? I think most of those virtues point us towards guidelines for like, what is most important about these leaders, right? What are the virtues that we want them to cultivate? And the idea that that, that someone was a husband of one wife or a wife of, of one husband, you know, goes both ways, um, that that suggested virtue, it was in part because it suggested fidelity to your spouse. And right. ancient people valued that. It wasn't that um, you couldn't get remarried or that divorce wasn't even allowed. It was, but they still valued this idea of fidelity to your spouse. And so, and it also suggests self-control, right? Sexual self-control mm -hmm. um, to not get remarried. And so those um, those are virtues, but, I, but it, they weren't absolute. Um, and I don't mm -hmm. think, I mean, in, in early Christianity, eventually Christians get very much on the sexual fidelity and chastity right. bandwagon. And it, it does become um, not absolute, but it becomes very important over time. So I don't want to rule that out as a possibility, even when that uh, letter was written. But in general, I think that that idea of self-control is what is most important in the yeah. qualities that we see there. Yeah, no, that makes sense. All right. I'd, I'd love to just Maybe pick your brain a little bit or hear you riff a little bit on your book. I mean, it's mostly, I, I, again, I highly, highly recommend it to everyone. In fact, for, for my mind, it, it is the place to begin for students and really anybody that's wanting to work through the historical issues because you do such a good job of setting things out clearly, love the discussion questions and exercises. I mean, it's like a teacher's dream, right? But just towards the end of the book, you start to begin to kind of gesture at here are some factors we have to consider when we move from reasoning from the New Testament to what would it look like for women to serve in the church today? How do people reason through these things theologically? So, I mean, I'd be curious to hear, yeah, you're thinking on how how one moves from text to world today in a responsible way. What are some things that you think are important to consider? Because it strikes me that the, we have disagreements on this because we have passages that support both, you know, both positions. Like if somebody 
read second Timothy two twelve as an absolute prohibition. That's the plain meaning of the text. They can just keep going back to the Bible and saying, but my Bible says this and you're, you're capitulating to culture or whatever, you know? So I'd love to just get your thinking on how to move from text to world today. How, how do you do that? Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words about my book. I'm really glad that you find it helpful. Um, I, I wanted to end like that in part because my context and the way that I read these texts is my own context. And my reading of them will not be helpful for a lot of people who are out there and really care about these questions and find them really important, in part because um, they have a different theology of scripture than I do and their tradition values um, other things also, perhaps, mm. right? So if you're Catholic, for example, it's actually not the reading of the scripture that's the most important thing with regard to women's ordination. It's the tradition over the church of the church over these many centuries, right? So, um, and if you're Church of Christ, say, you know, even when you read the scripture, what you care most about is Acts and um, maybe the Pauline letters, but not so much the Gospels. And so, for I see this in all of my students, right? They just come from very specific contexts, and the way that they encounter these questions. And therefore, the questions that they bring to the text when they're reading it are very different. And so I hope that by leaving these questions at the end of each chapter kind of open-ended and exploratory, I want the readers to be able to bring their own problems and context and um, all of that to the interpretation of the text and just use the history in whatever way it's helpful for them. Now, personally, what I find to be most important is um, in terms of interpreting the Bible in ways that connect to my life or the life of my community is to enter into a process of discernment with my community, right? Not to do this solo and make up my own decisions or even solo me and God, right? But um, in community to try to discern what it is that God is saying to us through the witness of scripture and, you know, to do that in a prayerful way. And, you know, of course that involves, um, a lot of our own assumptions about what scripture is for, right? A kind of theology of scripture, but also readings of a wide variety of, of New Testament texts. And then how do you put them together, right? How do you weigh right. one scripture against another and, you know, try to make sense of all this? It's a really complicated thing to do. It is. And we it do is. it all the time. Um, right. But I think acknowledging its complexity and just inviting people to ponder it is mm. one of the most important things. Yeah. Yeah, for me, no, of course. And that's not yeah. helpful to other people in some ways. <laughs> yeah, no, it is different. But I mean, yeah, it's just it, it's always striking to me how different people handle the evidence differently and what they prioritize. I, I, I'm at a place in my life where I, it's, it is hard for me, to be honest, to wrap my mind around how some people find it really helpful to use like one or two verses as absolutes like you know, first Timothy two twelve, and that's the grid through which you read all the rest of the new Testament evidence about a women in leadership. I have a really hard time making sense of that, but I also wonder if maybe it's kind of like a, a hermeneutical assumption that if you have a command somewhere that has precedence or priority over data spread throughout where Paul's addressing female leaders or naming female leaders or, or other things. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's, we, we reason through things, through things differently, but doing the history like you've done here, I guess helps us maybe become more aware of our assumptions and our process. And maybe that's part of what we need to do to understand and appreciate one another better is just, get it out on the table. Like here's, here's how we're doing what we're doing. Here's how we're moving from A to B to C. 
you know, you say at the end that the New Testament is not an egalitarian book or manifesto. And I I mean, I don't know historically how we could make it that, like given the culture that it's written in, right? And so I, I mean, we have to be we have to be honest about that. And I, I'm even aware of that that tension in my own spaces because I tend to be in maybe a little bit more conservative uh evangelical spaces, at least in terms of where I've been hired at, you know, since doing the PhD. And so I'm very sensitive to people that that want Paul to be an egalitarian, for example. Um, but is that a, a fair assumption for us to have that Paul would be an mm-hmm. in, in egalitarian? And if he's not, then does that mean that we're restricted, therefore, to have, you know, just stay in the first century, uh, so to speak? So just that that process of moving through and wrestling is... Um, it is a complicated one, <laughs> for sure. It really is. And I, I mean, I think working through those questions is one of the most important things we do. And sometimes I think we forget to talk about those things as New Testament scholars. Um, but a lot of my students have those same questions and come out of a very either fundamentalist or foundationalist approach to reading scripture. And I think it's always important to sit back and, and remember that the New Testament or the Bible as a whole commands us to do all kinds of things that we do not want to do and we think are actually bad, right? right. Um, so for example, holding slaves and slaves submitting to their masters. Nobody gives this advice to people who are victims of human trafficking these days. And we would think it's abhorrent to do that, right? right. So right. if we can acknowledge that kind of thing, then we need to account for why we would make that choice about one command and not about a very similar command that's made to women, which we want to, sometimes want to embrace. So it's yeah. just, it is very complicated. But um, yeah, I think part of the, another thing along the same lines that I want students to see is that we have had a tendency in American Christianity, especially to think that the main purpose of scripture is to command us to do things in our life, right? To right. tell us how to live our lives. And right. actually, there's so much to scripture that is not doing right. that, right? right. Let's take right. the Psalms, for example, right? Which their goal is to praise God often or, um, right. or to cry out to God. And right. this, is, um, this is not a command, right? It's a different, very different mode of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, the narratives of scripture and the New Testament in particular, too, they don't come with morals, usually. Right. They're just stories. Right. And if we right. take something from them, we're, we're doing that. We're interpretation, right? We're... Um, taking something out of the story, but what it does is to tell us a story. And so being able to see the difference between our assumptions about what we want scripture to do and Mm -hmm. the modes in which scripture actually speaks can be a helpful part, I think, of developing a more nuanced theology of scripture, I hope. Yeah, 100%. And it's easier said than done because it can be feel like a kind of jarring, threatening thing at first. But um, yeah, it's I, I find it very life-giving when we can create sp- spaces like that for students to step into that and to just explore, to wrestle, um, to come to their own conclusions on things and, and to keep some things open-ended that they're going to continue to grow and develop and change in their, right. in their thinking. And yeah. I want them to see too that that is in some ways a more careful reading of scripture, right? So understanding the Psalms as the function being to praise God as one example, right? Um, Is is actually taking seriously scripture in a way that, you know, um, making a command out of that would not be, it would be misreading it. And so it's not that we're trying to get around scripture in some way. It's actually a different way of faithfully listening to scripture. 
that's so helpful. I, I, you know, even to tie it into what you said about the second Timothy or first Timothy two twelve, if that section is laying out a general, you know, assumptions and about having self-restraint, self-control in a context where women were expected to be more self-restrained and quiet in certain spaces uh, or around certain people to say then that the general function of that text for all times and all places is women do not speak in church that would be a misreading of the of the text even in its ancient context that's that's your argument and so um that's i think that's really important you know to to just lay that out there and say hold on you know you're you're picking a verse here and you're assuming that what you take to be common sense kind of reading of the text, that's what it means uh, in all times and all places. I, I think actually that's one of the biggest issues that I find that I bump into in the classroom is the assumption of a kind of common sense hermeneutics that we don't need to really think too far about the context or anything like that, because that would undermine the clarity of the scriptures. So whatever, you know, is common sense to me, that must be, you know, and clearly this is saying that. And so, boom, that's that kind of settles it. I'd be curious to, to hear, like, now that you've written Finding Phoebe, are, are we going to be finding any other any other women anytime soon? Or yeah, obviously you had another one, uh, your other, earlier book with Thecla in it as well. But um, oh, what's yeah. on the, what's on the horizon? What's on the horizon for you? At the moment, I'm working on some pieces on tr describing gender in the ancient world. And currently, the mm. one relates to what we were talking about earlier, just thinking about how, you know, for us, we think sex and gender are so closely related, right? So we have men and we have women and often nothing else, right? Um, and uh, and so and you might have, for example, upper class women and lower class women, but they're all women in our thinking. And my thinking is that in the ancient world, that was reversed almost because class was so important. And so I'm trying to describe a way of seeing how the dominant factor was actually not sex, but class that made a mm. difference. And so they would never have said that um, enslaved women were women um, uh, using the same language as, you know, an elite Roman woman, for example, um, in their mind, that was that didn't make sense. And so um, I think that means that we need to understand gender differently in the ancient world. And I'm not sure where that will take me with regard to the New Testament, but I'm really interested in the this um, interesting theoretical question about how do we even talk about a gender in a different historical time and place? Yeah, that's fascinating. Does it tie into it all like with the ways in which kind of gender performance seems to be an obsession of some Greco-Roman male writers or... I'm thinking, for example, like if you want to put down your opponent, right, you might stylize them in effeminate ways as a kind of like lowering them on the, the totem pole. Or in the case of like the the mother, uh, the, the, the Jewish mother who's martyred along with her seven sons, right, that she is praised in Second Maccabees and Fourth Maccabees very highly for kind of performing masculinity above and beyond most men. Is that the, is that the kind of stuff that you're It's that's totally into? related, right? So, okay. um a woman the woman like the woman in 4th Maccabees is um in a way it's a it's a it's giving her higher status, right? She is a manly woman. Um and yes. that is better than being a, a woman in general, right? And so this idea that um, this is mostly among the elite classes, right? That there's this sort of interplay between masculinity and femininity, if you will, right? That it's not a hard line. 
is definitely relevant to that. And then it's related to your relative social standing to other people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I find that all really fascinating. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm looking forward to seeing some of your work on that. That sounds really great. Thanks. Well, um, yeah, I just thank you again so much for uh, for your time and for, for the conversation. Thank you for finding Phoebe for us um, there in plain sight. But um, again, just... Yeah, I can't thank you enough for for your time for the book. It's one that I'll be coming back to for for years to come with students. So really appreciate you and appreciate your scholarship. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been really fun talking to you. Yeah.